Hello, thank you for tuning in to today's conversation. We're going to be taking a whirlwind tour of the world of allergies with Dr. Samira Jamie, a clinical immunologist and allergist. Dr. Jamie is an assistant professor and program director for the Division of Clinical Immunology and Allergy at Western University in Ontario, Canada. In her day job, Dr. Jamie helps families prevent and manage all sorts of allergies, from drugs and vaccines to chronic hives to common food allergens like peanuts and milk. On the side, she posts science-based tidbits on social media to help the public understand what allergies are and what they're not. We're only able to scratch the surface of this fascinating field today, but I for one learned a lot and hope that you will too. Let's dig in. Welcome to Get Real Health. I'm your host, Dr. Chana Davis. This show cuts through the noise to give you science-based insights from real experts so that you can make smart, healthy choices. Welcome to the show, Dr. Samira Jamie. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. So you are a clinical immunologist and allergist. Can you explain what exactly that means and what you do? Lovely. So I um, trained as an internal medicine specialist out of residency. So that means that I trained with predominantly adult patients. And then I went into a fellowship in allergy and immunology, which is unique in that we actually then go back to seeing kids again. So we see kids and adults and our scope of practice becomes very broad. So we see common things like allergies. We give allergy shots. We see asthma and eczema. And we also see some weird and wonderful things like immunodeficiencies and rare diseases like hereditary angioedema. So very broad scope yeah, that covers immunologic disease and allergic disease. So I would love to just get the lay of the land for you because I know nothing about this field. So how do you even bucket different allergies? I mean, I think about it as maybe food and seasonal allergies, drug allergies. So how do you kind of bucket them? And what are sort of the underpinnings of those categories? That's actually excellent compartmentalization. So yes, exactly. So there's your environmental allergens or seasonal allergens, food allergens, drug allergens. And then there are sort of the immune-mediated diseases like eczema, chronic urticaria, as well as angioedema. So in terms of the underpinnings of it, that's a great question. A lot of what we do have to do with allergy cells called mast cells. They do underpin a lot of the symptoms of what we treat. We deal with the allergy part, I guess, of the immunologic pathway. So there's something called the T2 pathway and there's something called the T1 pathway. The T1 pathway is very famous for mediating autoimmune disease and the T1 pathway is more well-known for allergic disease. So think of us as the T2 people, really. <laughs> and by T2, I mean all of the parts of the immune system that work to create the symptoms of allergic disease. My husband and I were talking about this. He's an evolutionary biologist by training. Oh, wow. And so we were wondering, why would this exist evolutionarily? Right. I mean, this must be some co-opting of a pathway that's otherwise useful. Yes. Did you have any thoughts on this? Because <laughs> there are some hypotheses about it, right? You guys have both heard of probably of the hygiene hypothesis. Yes. Which is that as a society, we are too clean. The part of the immune system that has adapted to fight parasites is really the one that is involved in modulating allergy symptoms. Mm -hmm. 
there's a few different hypotheses of why we have an increased prevalence of allergic disease. And one of them is the dual allergen theory. And that has a lot to do with food allergy. There is a lot of eczema in the world. And we think that exposure of food allergens through an impaired barrier, like what happens in eczema with impaired skin barrier, and not seeing food antigens, I guess, through the gut can promote the development of a food allergy. So your body sees food through broken down skin, but not through gut. Your body creates a defensive response against the food rather than a tolerant response to the food. And that's one of the theories for why we have so much food allergy. And that is sort of taken and extended further into what's called the leaky epithelial barrier hypothesis of why we have allergies. And that one sort of posits that there are pollutants and detergents and all these chemicals that we are exposed to that cause some damage to not just our skin barrier, but our barriers that line the interface of various different organs. And when these molecules can sort of penetrate through these impaired barriers, the body then mounts a defensive response against these molecules and develops allergies to it rather than just tolerating them as ubiquitous parts of the environment. So what can we learn? You mentioned global trends or just temporal trends and the fact that some allergies are on the rise. First of all, I wanted to fact check that because having worked in the cancer detection world, I'm very well aware of screening rates and pickup rates can very much impact how much we see something. So how much do we really believe things are changing dramatically? And what can we learn about geographic differences and subpopulation differences and where we're seeing changes in allergy rates? Definitely, there's a detection bias, right, where we are recognizing it more because we look for it more. There is also this phenomenon where there's a discrepancy between self-reported rates of, for example, food allergy versus a confirmed diagnosis of food allergy by an allergist or another specialist. And by that, I mean the term allergy, much to my dislike, (laughs) is often misused and sort of misapplied to any adverse reactions to anything, right? Mm. So a person has an intolerance to a food or a drug or a chemical or a sensitivity that might get labeled as an allergy, where Uh. an allergy specifically means that your body has created antibodies, allergy antibodies, IgE antibodies against a specific food or an environmental allergen or drug. And those antibodies can cross-link that cell that I was talking about, the mast cells, activate the mast cells, the mast cells release chemicals and other mediators that then lead to the symptoms of allergy. So it's a very specific definition that does get overused. That being said, confirmed rates of at least food allergy are on the rise. And we think that sort of the hypotheses that I've mentioned before, the hygiene hypothesis, the leaky epithelial hypothesis, and the dual allergen hypothesis, those all, I think, have to do with the increasing burden. Many people think that climate change has had an impact with regards to environmental allergens. The pollen seasons are just getting longer and longer, and pollens are being picked up in areas where you would not ordinarily because of weather phenomenons. So yeah, lots of dynamic changes. Yeah. So let me just make sure I got some of this right, because I'm learning a lot here. Technically, you shouldn't really use the term allergy unless it's mediated by antibodies, which then activate mast cells, which then activate further signaling cascades. Yep. So if somebody has, they can't break down lactose, that is not an allergy. That is not an allergy. And, you know, it does a disservice to both the person who has a 
lactose intolerance and the person who has a milk allergy because the treatment of these things are completely different. Mm. A person who has lactose intolerance will not have a life-threatening reaction to milk exposure as someone with milk allergy would. A person with lactose intolerance has ways to sort of mitigate the symptoms, as does the patient with milk allergy. But again, the treatment is completely different. So I really think it's important to diagnose properly. Interesting. So does that mean that when we started with different categories of allergies, like food allergies and seasonal allergies, that the biology is actually very similar? It's just being triggered by different upstream signals? That's right. So the mechanism of what is happening at a molecular level is actually quite similar. Oh, wow. And, you know, it's interesting because the treatments that we use, we can sometimes use things, for example, very targeted therapies like biologic therapies for, say, asthma. We can use in other atopic conditions like sometimes chronic hives. There is a lot of overlap in the mechanism of what is mediating the symptoms. That makes our job fascinating and sort of rewarding because we do have a lot of tools in our armamentarium. Interesting. I worked at Genentech for a few years and I believe they have Zolaire. Yes, it's now Novartis. Okay, that was a while ago. (laughs) Yeah, so amalizumab, the anti-IgE biologic molecule, has been around for, I think, the longest. Somebody can fact check me on this, but I think that is the biologic that has the longest history of use of over two decades. I think you probably remember it being used for chronic hives. Now we actually use it to do things like augment food oral immunotherapy to treat Hmm. anaphylactic food allergy, where we can actually desensitize to a certain amount of food. Again, with the shared mechanism, it's quite rewarding to be able to treat multiple things. Yeah, that's fascinating. In my time in biotech, I learned about how doctors do, you know, off-label use, and it ends up being they discover new markets because they have these creative ideas of how to use an existing drug that was tested in one condition in another condition, then eventually you run a proper trial. Yeah. So this is a good segue into common misconceptions because we've already talked about some of these, just the misuse of the term allergy. But I know from some of the work that I've seen on your social media that you're big on helping to educate people and bust harmful misinformation. So what are some of the messages that you want to put out there and help clarify for people? I still see my fair share of patients who are not aware of preventative measures that you can take in infancy to prevent a lifetime of food allergy. So early introduction of allergenic foods is so important. It is so important to introduce at least peanut, egg, and milk early, early in life when the child is developmentally ready between months four and six. There is sort of a golden opportunity where regular incorporation of the food in the diet can likely give rise to tolerant antibodies in the gut that can then long-term protect against a food allergy. I will still see my fair share of people who haven't heard of this practice. It's got very strong evidence behind it, at least the peanut trials. It's called the LEAP study. It is pretty well known and nicely done. And then the same principle was applied to egg and milk, and it's borne out for those foods as well. We really sort of strongly advocate for the introduction of allergenic foods early in life to the point where in my social media, you might have seen a few of us in Canada actually supervised over video early introduction of allergenic foods to kids who are at high risk of developing a food allergy. So these are kids who may have had a sibling with multiple food allergies or they had really bad eczema or there was another food allergy and there was a hesitation to 
introduce another specific food. So we felt so strongly that waiting until the pandemic social restrictions were over to introduce the foods, we would miss that window that we created this risk stratification algorithm to allow us to safely administer first introduction of um, allergenic foods to kids. And it was quite rewarding, I must say. We felt that strongly about that. That's amazing. Can we just actually take a step back there? Because actually, I'm very curious about the risk factors. How much does it run in families? And how much do we see across different countries and diets? What are some of the trends we see? Yeah, so one of the trends is that the presence of an egg allergy can confer higher risk of possibly having a peanut allergy. So if there is already a history of egg allergy, it is important to introduce other allergenic foods into the diet ASAP because those kids will be considered high risk of potentially developing a food allergy. Eczema does put you at higher risk of multiple food allergies because of that dual allergen hypothesis that I mentioned before, where the body does not like to see food molecules through broken down skin. It will sort of try to mount a defensive response against foods. So the body likes to see things, foods through the gut in order to make what's called tolerant or blocking antibodies. And that sort of leads to long-term tolerance and prevention of food allergy. So what advice do you have? I have a friend who has a daughter with a severe peanut allergy and she has two other children. So she was super nervous about having peanuts in the house. So you must see that a lot. What advice do you give to families like that? So, you know, very case by case basis, right? So we do a pretty thorough history and determine what a specific patient's pretest probability, right? Or like likelihood of having an actual reaction will be. Now it's been studied and published that when infants are introduced to a food for the first time, that first reaction, even if it is going to be an allergic reaction, tends to be mild. So I often will reassure people by introducing that concept that the immune system really has to ingest things more than once for it to develop the type of immune response against it that would cause a severe allergic reaction. So sort of setting the stage and taking some of that anxiety away from that first introduction is important. Next thing, depending on the clinical history, and you know, again, the family history of allergies matters, the presence of eczema matters, the presence of egg allergy matters. So depending on that particular person's clinical history, we may or may not do a skin test to see if there is sensitization to a particular food that they would like to introduce. And now I said may or may not, because in some cases, I will just do something called an observed ingestion, which means I will just give the food in my clinic to sort of reassure the patient that if something happens, we can manage it right then and there. And then we're done. We give the kiddo a serving size of the food. If they tolerate it, that's great. Sometimes oral challenges are not always successful, right? So sometimes there will be a reaction. But again, this has been published that even when there is unsuccessful result of an oral challenge, patients are often thankful that they went through that experience under a very sort of monitored and careful setting. And it's not practice per se, but they develop a sense of sort of empowerment and confidence over the fact that, okay, this reaction happened. I know how to deal with this reaction. And that I think gives this sense of power that many patients tell me afterwards they find helpful, even when there is an outcome that we may not necessarily have wanted. So oral challenge, observed ingestion, plus or minus skin test in order to introduce those things. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about credible versus maybe not reliable different allergy tests out there? Excellent question. One that I probably rant about on a regular basis on social (laughs) media. 
So I talked about the blocking antibodies, right? The ones that the gut generates in an attempt to sort of prevent the development of food allergies. So those are called IgG antibodies against a food. There is an IgG food test that is not validated. From what I've said, you can guess that it's not really ethical, right, to use. It doesn't pick up food allergy because food allergies are mediated by IgE. And the IgG test, the results are always the same. The first three results are always corn, milk, and egg, because those are the most commonly ingested foods in our population. And of course, the body has made tolerant antibodies to those foods. So I personally do not believe that they should be just out in the general public because all it does is create this false diagnosis, right? And it also is unsafe because it will miss an allergy. Who would be selling those types of tests? I think they're pretty ubiquitously available, unfortunately. Yeah. Just randomly online or a naturopath or something like that. Randomly online. Yeah. Why would they not offer an IgE test instead? Yeah. So an IgE testing is also, I would say, it should not be done without the proper clinical context because there is a risk of false positive and false negative as with any test. And unfortunately, with the IgE testing for foods in particular, the false positive rates are quite high. So you do a test and then if you're not prepared to go through with the next steps of the test, you shouldn't be doing it. So I try to advocate that you should really have a thorough clinical history done. Then if it's indicated, then the testing should be done. And knowing that the next step to having a positive IgE result is an oral food challenge. That's the gold standard to rule out a rule in an allergy. So oral challenge, you mean you actually take the food and then see how you respond? That's right. A graded oral challenge or an oral food challenge is essentially eating about a serving size, an age-appropriate serving size of a food in incremental doses with 30-minute intervals between each dose and under an observed setting where anaphylaxis can be monitored. And then depending on, I talk about the history a lot, you're going to get sick of me saying history, history, history. History matters a lot, but depending on the history and the testing, there will be a low to moderate to high chance of passing the challenge. And you can sort of guess that from the, not guess, but you can estimate it from the get-go. And, you know, if a patient sometimes has a high risk of having an unsuccessful oral food challenge, then it might not happen at all. But, you know, in the setting of a low to moderate risk of an oral food challenge, it's often done. And that is really the best way to diagnose a food allergy or rule out a food allergy. Mm -hmm. And so where do skin-based tests fit in? Skin tests are another form of checking for IgE-mediated sensitization. So it is a helpful sort of, you can think of it as an in vitro test, right? That is another sort of data point that helps you develop a likelihood ratio of the presence or absence of a food allergy. Some people ask, if the size of the skin test or the level of the antibody predicts severity of the allergy, it does not. There is a prediction of whether an allergy is present or not. So for example, if a peanut skin test is over 7 millimeter, then there is a high risk of an allergy being present. If a IgE level is, say, over 5 for peanut, then possibly the peanut allergy is there. But the gold standard always remains the oral food challenge. Does anybody know what is it about peanuts or the the foods that are most commonly allergenic? Why? Why those foods? It's actually milk. Milk is overtaking peanut slowly but surely. You know, a lot of the horrifying headlines, I must say, that we see in, in the news, they have to do with milk allergy. The milk allergy reactions tend to be very severe. Peanut gets a lot of press. Peanut gets a lot of hype. I will say as an allergist, 
Milk allergy is the one that scares me. The other one you might be surprised to hear is cashew allergy. So I told you the skin test and the blood test can sort of predict whether a patient is going to have a successful or unsuccessful oral challenge. With cashew, don't find to be the case. Hmm. It tends to be a little bit more unpredictable and that's never reassuring. <laughs> we have a healthy respect for cashew and milk. Schools in my son's elementary school, or both all of my children's elementary school, it's a complete nut ban. And whereas in other contexts, it's peanuts only. I was going to ask you your thoughts on the full nut ban making sense. And it sounds like with cashews being a wild card there, maybe there's a rationale for it. My thoughts on this are controversial. And I actually say this with the lived experience of having a food allergy myself. So I don't think that the bans are helpful. I really don't. There actually have been studies that show that there's a meta-analysis that shows they're not all that effective. What happens is it creates this false sense of security sometimes that you will never be exposed to your allergen. And what you would want is for people around you to be empowered, to give you that EpiPen, to be empowered and educated, to give you the appropriate treatment should an exposure occur. And also sort of be careful about exposures because sure, you know, like it's nice for the peanut allergic person to not have to worry about peanut or you don't know if they don't have to worry about peanut, but what about the sesame allergic patient? What about all of the other allergens that are also fairly common, right? So where do you sort of draw the line in terms of what is allowed in a person's environment or not? And how quality of life restricting could that possibly become, right? Knowing that inhaling a food or accidentally touching a food is exceedingly rare in causing anaphylactic reaction because you simply don't take in enough protein into the blood for those mast cells to get activated. So I realize my thoughts on this are controversial, but you know, when sort of the reflex thought is to want to have a safe environment for your baby, I have babies, I want my baby's environment to be safe, but what is safe? Is it safe that teachers and school staff know how to use an EpiPen properly or that we depend on others to not bring a food into school? You know what I mean? Yeah, well, it sounds like it doesn't have to be either or. Ideally, it would be both, I guess. That's true, right? There are ways to mitigate risk without being extreme about things. Precisely. I totally agree with you. But it has to be not just optics. It has to be actually impactful. Yes, you nailed it. So it can't just be like a performance, right? It can't be just for show. It's okay. We have a nut ban, right? Mm -hmm. The other thing that I like really dislike is the labeling around may contain, right? Like That's another thing that's really for show and Really, it's protection against litigation. I might yes. be getting myself into trouble. Yes, here. oh, I'm sure. <laughs> we really have to make shared decisions with patients around this issue because it can be quality of life limiting if a patient is sort of limiting everything that, for example, if a patient is avoiding soy. Soy tends to be in everything in life. It can be really limiting to the quality of life to have to avoid all foods that contain soy. So we have to really have a careful discussion about what's safe versus what's appropriate. Mm-hmm. I wanted to see whether we missed anything under the prevention category, because it seems to me that that's always where you can have the most impact, most bang for your buck. Yes. So other than early introduction, another preventative thing is really to manage eczema aggressively when eczema happens, because eczema can really create this confusing picture where it seems like a baby or a child is reacting to every single thing in life where really the root cause of it is their skin barrier is impaired and there's an inflammatory cycle that is set up and really everything irritates it. And it's really hard to 
tease out what is an actual allergy there and what is not. So aggressively managing the eczema is so, so important to prevent a food allergy from happening and prevent false diagnoses from happening. Interesting. Moving on to just general advice, both for those with acute allergies themselves or in their family and those who are more clueless like myself. You don't sound clueless at all. (laughs) Well, I don't have any severe allergies in my immediate family. And so then, you know, every once in a while I'm put in the shoes of a friend of mine whose daughter has a severe peanut allergy. And I wonder if I should be acting differently with the awareness of people out there who are dealing with something that I'm not dealing with. I think that's a great question. And I give you props for wanting to support your friends with food allergy, because, you know, I find that it's hard for people who don't experience something firsthand to appreciate just how much anxiety there is around things like accidental exposure because of poor awareness amongst others, right? So I think really sort of just just straight out asking, right? If you have friends or family, just if you're going to have a party or something and you're inviting them over, like what kinds of things would make them comfortable? What would not make them comfortable? For example, there are people who want a designated space to have their food so that it doesn't touch other foods. And like I said, the risk of anaphylaxis is low, but you know, your mind makes a pretty strong connection that, you know, if you're exposed to something, you're going to have a severe reaction. And that connection is real. A neural circuitry has been formed. You get anxious about it and it should be supported, I think. So, you know, just supporting the person's feelings about how they deal with their allergies, I think is so important. You know, not throwing around the term allergy. Yeah. (laughs) Please and thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I really dislike when people say they're allergic to life. You know, I'm, oh, I'm allergic to exercise. (laughs) FYI. You can be actually allergic to exercise. I posted about this before. Well, I'm going to have to look that up because my husband gets this little itch when he starts running. That's cholinergic urticaria. I might have posted about this. I don't know if he actually gets an eruption, your husband, but there is a form of hives and you may or may not even have an eruption. It it just kind of looks like pinpoint little prickly uh, heat rash. That sounds like him. That's cholinergic urticaria and that can happen when the core body temperature is elevated. And everybody has their own personal threshold. And we can actually measure this threshold with a special test in our clinic called the temp test. Wow. <laughs> that's another very common thing that we see, urticaria. We haven't talked about it, but that's for another day. <laughs> wow. I love that advice. Don't throw the word around. It loses its meaning, right? Mm-hmm. No pun intended, but it desensitizes people to the impact. Yeah. And one small thing that I've started to do is just Whenever I have a play date, like my kids have a friend over, I always ask the kid. I think kids are probably well-trained to be upfront about their allergies. Yes. Kids are actually so good. I love my kid patients. It's actually one of the best parts of my job. Kids are very aware and you know they might not always be able to tell you that something is making them feel bad, but they will not touch that food. <laughs> you know That can be a sign, right? That they may be having stomach pains or they're not feeling good after eating a food. But I think kids are so much smarter than we give them credit for. Absolutely. So are there any last closing messages we didn't touch on for allergy awareness or misinformation that you wanted to put out there before we bring this to a close? Sean, I don't remember if you're Canadian or not. I think you are. Yes. You're on the West Coast, yeah. So yeah, we have a Canadian society of allergy immunology that sort of puts out a lot of resources. And I would like to draw attention to those resources because there are so many resources. There's a lot of misinfo out there. So I sort of encourage people to seek out more credible resources. And I must say like, that's why I very reluctantly ventured into this world of social media because just found ourselves getting outspoken. We were just sort of being drowned out by the massive amounts of misinformation that was spewed out there. I 
hope that this podcast is another way for me to sort of get the message out there that I really encourage everyone to look for credible sources of information because the sheer amount of misinfo out there is just mind boggling. Absolutely. I'm all about the same thing, finding credible resources to turn to. Do you have a particular red flag to look for? If a person is typically like, you know, when somebody's saying creating diagnoses and then selling things <laughs> to cure that diagnosis, be aware, right? I think it's important to be aware, follow the money. That's what I want to say. I think follow the money and think about whether the person giving you advice about buying something from them has your best interests at heart. Mm-hmm. That is wonderful advice. Well, thank you very much for your time and for all that you're doing to help people navigate this field using science, not misinformation. Thank you very much for having me. You can tell I love my job, as do most allergists. So I'm really happy to share about our world online. All right. Well, have a good rest of your evening. Thank you. Thank you.